0: is a functional programming language for web browsers. Richard Feldman and Srinivas Rao are front-end developers who work with Elm. Richard and Srinivas, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks. What is Elm?
1: Well, uh, like you said, Elm's a functional programming language. It compiles to JavaScript. Essentially, anything you can do in JavaScript, you can do using some combination of Elm, or Elm's uh, way of talking to JavaScript. So it's sort of for sort a of foreign function interface. Um, basically you can use it for any kind of web development that you would use normal JavaScript tools for, especially things like react.
0: What are the problems with web development that Elm is solving?
2: brow you want to take that one? Uh, sure. I'm going to take that. So, um, uh, Writing JavaScript is hard. Uh, I think we would all agree that. uh, that. And uh, one of the problems with JavaScript particularly is that the language itself um, is not great. Uh, It doesn't have – it's not type checked. uh, It's not functional. It's very easy to get – to have have side effects that are unintended. And any front-end developer uh, who's been in the industry for any amount of time has probably, like, seen, like, undefined is not a function or an array isn't an array, problems and things like that, uh, Elm solves a lot of those problems. It's just, like, in a way where other frameworks kind of make things better by having a better architecture, Elm makes the language itself better uh, in, in, in a lot of ways. Uh, things I don't have to worry about anymore, coding in Elm, runtime errors. Um, the amount of times I console log anymore is, is pretty minimal. Um, and I never have to worry about, like, a thing... Being a different thing than I would have ex- expected originally, uh, so th- there's definitely just advantages in writing in a civilized language, uh, and that's what that's what Elm gives us.
0: The creator of Elm, Evan Copley, wrote a post called "Why I Designed a Front-End Programming Language from Scratch," and the post starts off with this quote: "Today's programming languages have traditionally been created by the tech giants." These languages are made up of millions of lines of code, so the tech giants only invest in incremental, non-breaking changes that address their business concerns, end quote. So I'm curious if you guys agree with this statement, and, and I'm wondering how, how you feel it applies to how JavaScript has developed.
1: Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, it seems like uh, there, there have been a few exceptions to that. Um, but if you look at the languages that have the most traction, there is an enormous correlation between having the backing of tech giants versus not. I mean, Java's huge. It was backed by Oracle. Um, JavaScript is huge. It was backed by Netscape and other uh, companies that developed browsers afterwards and followed suit. Um, C Sharp, obviously, is backed by Microsoft, that whole family of languages. Um Really, I think uh, the only exceptions to that are uh, maybe Ruby, uh, which was you know got big basically when DHH came out with Rails. Before that was a, a big corporate thing. Um, arguably Python, although Python wasn't really big until Google got behind it. Um, and I think uh, the when it comes to JavaScript in particular, uh, it's the intersection of it was backed by a, a, you know, Netscape's desire to have some scripting language in the browser, uh, it, combined with a really short deadline for Brendan Eich be, being able to ship the thing. And uh, in particular with JavaScript, the idea of, um, it, of the language being created to serve the, you know, the tech company as opposed to um, the end users... That's a great example because originally it was just going to be Scheme. It was just going to be Scheme in the browser. We would have had functional programming in the browser from day one. Um, Except that somebody at Netscape, or or so I've heard, the the story goes, uh, somebody said, this Java thing is pretty popular right now. We want you to make it like Java instead. And that's how we ended up with JavaScript. So, uh,
0: Yeah, so so (laughs) Evan continues his post by saying, Open source language innovation has not yet disrupted front-end programming. We still use the same object-oriented model that took over the industry in the 1980s. The tech giants are heavily committed to this approach. So what are the problems that are associated with this object-oriented programming that is espoused by the tech giants? Well,
1: uh, uh, Brad, do you have a comment on that?
2: Uh,
0: sure. So like for some
2: context, like I think me and Richard were both like down with object oriented programming in general. Uh, our, (laughs) our, uh, our backend is totally, oh, obviously we're rails. Like I, I don't think, um, our worries are specifically around that. Uh, but that said, like there hasn't been kind of a sea change or there hasn't been a paradigm shift in front end development basically ever when it comes to that, like we've accepted kind of the, we, we've accepted that we're OO because everybody's doing OO everywhere. Um, but, like, those have specific problems on the front end, right? It's, it's we don't have, um, like, we have to deal with asynchronous stuff a lot more. We have to do, like, our the, the language and the paradigm is around events regardless, um, which means that something like the actor model just makes a lot more sense um, for the problems we're solving. Um, and I think we sometimes fall back on OO kind of as default. Uh, that said, yeah, again, I, I don't think OO in particular is a problem. Maybe, Richard, you're angrier about that. Well,
1: I, I, I would draw an important distinction between um, sort of uh, OO as it was originally designed by Alan Kay and OO as, well, as, as Evan put it, the object-oriented model that took over the industry in the 1980s, which was pretty far from what Alan Kay originally designed. Um, because originally, uh, his version of OO was all about immutability and about um, you know objects talking to one another. And it was more about organization of where to... Um, you know where your functions should live in regards to the, the data they're working on and a lot less about mutation. Um, so when I you know looked at what I think is problematic about the, the, the approach that we've been taking you know since the 80s and basically the almost the entire time I've been a programmer, The main thing that I think is problematic tends to be mutation and side effects. That seems to be the stuff that gets us into trouble, um, where we end up with code bases that do surprising things, and we have bugs that are difficult and time-consuming to track down just as a result of doing normal maintenance and expansion of our code base. Um, From my perspective, the the overall symptom of what's wrong with front-end development and really programming in general is just that we have to accept the reality that uh, our programs are going to change a lot. We're going to iterate. We're going to want to make improvements. We're going to want to add new features. And if the default is that iterating and adding new features causes bugs, that's a big problem. And uh, we we can't be in a normal you know in a world where the normal state of things is that when we do the normal thing it causes problems. That's just a symptom of something fundamentally broken. And what I've seen in, in my personal experience has been that when you have lots of code with mutation and side effects all over the place versus when you have a code base that has few or, in Elm's case, no mutation and no side effects, the latter is easy to refactor. It's easy to improve upon. It's easy to iterate on, and it doesn't break things when you do those things. So it, it just makes a lot more sense to me to, to sort of embrace the reality that our software needs to change and evolve and work in a language that makes it easy to do that.
0: Right. And so as we get into this discussion of uh, how Elm solves those problems, those anti patterns that get associated with object oriented programming somewhat, we should first kind of discuss how Elm is used. So, Elm is used to, to declaratively create user interfaces, or at least that's, that's one of the primary uses. You know, if you sit down, and you start messing around in the, uh, the in browser. Uh, experimental playground for elm which is which by the way i I recommend to anybody it's it's a really um really easy onboarding process there's lots of examples online um but i'd like to get an idea for how you define declarative programming and how how, like what what is the nature of this declarative user interface creation
1: so i would say declarative is simply no mutation no side effects Uh, you look at something like CSS. People can agree that that's declarative. Um, there are no you, you. in CSS, you cannot reassign variables to anything. You cannot uh, mutate anything. You just write it out once, and it's a complete description of what you want your style sheet to do. Elm is the same way. As crazy as that sounds, since Elm has things like if and you know branching conditionals, and and uh, and it can cause the the browser to perform tasks that themselves have side effects or, or that have effects rather. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, ultimately when you run your entire Elm program, you're, you know, you, you can compile the whole thing and what it's compiling down to is just a set of instructions that uh, you want browser ultimately to execute. But nothing, none of those particular instructions are directly going and telling your computer to do an effect or to uh, reassign a variable or to mutate some data. It's just a list of instructions, which then the Elm runtime carries out.
0: And so this, this declarative programming is also uh, functional. And um, I'm curious what you think are the conceptual leaps that programmers have to make to get from procedural programming to functional programming?
2: Uh, sure, I can take that. So, like, I think as someone who's come to functional programming like relatively recently, um, I think the biggest jump is that uh, basically smaller transformations are harder. Uh, things like changing a key in a mapping or, or adding an element to a list or slightly more difficult. Um, just because you can't, you can't pull something out, change it and expect the original thing to have changed. Right. And, and that's a big jump for, for, for a lot of us. But the other side of that is larger transformations are much, much easier to reason around in, 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 in a functional style. Um, and there, well, what that means is like, uh, like, when I write a giant function that takes in a model and returns a new model, I never have to worry about things changing that I didn't, that I never expected, uh, never expected to. So at least for me, like that's the big jump between procedural and, and and a functional style. Um, But I don't know, maybe Richard has a better sense. Yeah, I would agree with that.
0: Okay. Well, so let's, let's get into the uh, even further into the, the buzzword uh, bingo type of categorization, Um, actually, that's a bad, bad way of putting it. uh, So there's a very legitimate paradigm shift to this thing called functional reactive programming. And um, there's some, uh, you know, discussion around how this is defined. But what is what are each of your subjective definitions for what functional reactive programming is?
1: I have no idea. I really I, I don't know. And I very much don't care. (laughs) <laughs> uh, so we, I, I, I've actually talked with Evan about this, and you know, it, it's funny because initially um, the way that Elm came about was simply that Evan wanted to solve a problem. He just observed that um, developing in JavaScript was uh, more difficult than uh, was reasonable, and he wanted to solve that problem by creating a language. And so he did a bunch of research into what was out there, um, and some of his research were in- included. Papers, you know, academic papers, and you know research and things like that on things that self-identified as functional reactive programming. And so when he incorporated a lot of those ideas into Elm, he said, "Oh well, okay, Elm is also functional reactive programming because I've you know done that as part of uh, I have used these concepts from these papers that call themselves that." And then later on, some people started saying, "Well, F is, Elm is not truly FRP for these reasons." And Evan pretty quickly said. Okay, I don't care. Mainly, the most thing that the, the thing that I care about is that Elm is a nice language that solves these problems that makes front end development you know pleasant and scalable. Uh, and I would agree with that. So I I really I have never looked into what pe- different definitions of FRP are enough to really know. And honestly, it doesn't really impact my life much. Mainly, what I care about is that Elm is nice.
0: <laughs> so Rao, Rao, do you agree with this? Or like, so one of the things I, I hear about with functional reactive programming is like time is really important, and so you have this constant notion of your your code describes how things are at any given state, um, and so hand in hand with this is the notion that time is constantly passing, and therefore time is sort of this this um, mutative parameter that's being passed through your code. Um, I don't know, Rao, do you see that as as, uh, as an accurate description? Well, so, uh, so, so yes
2: and, and no. So <laughs> let me answer that in two different ways. One is that uh, kind of when you're coding in Elm just day to day, very little of your life is spent dealing with the functional reactive aspects of it. Um, and those are implemented as signals in, in, in Elm. And uh, like, and the... Jo- the pure JavaScript implementation of that is like people uh, use bacon js which is basically like event driven state updates uh, and you don't deal with that and i like I don't understand people who like like spe- like who say their entire jobs are dealing with stuff like that because at least my job hasn't been but um like specifically, like you're right, like time is a much harder. Thing to work with in Elm than it is in traditional JavaScript uh, because time changes, right? It's it's mutation. It would make functions non-pure if you were asking, like, if a thing is, uh, like, asking what right now is is different in 10 minutes than it is now. Um, but like, and there are likely other things that are harder in a, in a, in a, functional, in a functional paradigm that aren't in a procedural paradigm. Um, that said, we never deal with that. <laughs> like, the way we just kind of step, step by those, uh, questions like that. Like for instance, like, um, anytime we do need to ask what time it is, we just set what time it is before the program starts. And we just use that as a constant. I mean, uh, Richard, like, can you think of anything else that are like, Harder because uh, because of like uh, because of time passage. I can't think. I can't think of a an actual bug that's caused on the site.
1: Yeah, no. I mean, uh, so it's certainly true that Elm is built on top of Signals, and it's certainly true that uh, FRP is based around those ideas. But um, at the end of the day, it's it's really just kind of the the foundation that uh, you know. That's like Rao said. That's just really FRP is not really. The stuff that we spend our time on, uh, the stuff that we spend our time on is the same stuff that JavaScript programmers spend their time on, which is to say, building out UIs, setting up event ha- listeners for user input, describing how business logic, you know, reacts to that, and how the the UI should update in response to you know user inputs and things like that, sending data to the server. Um, when at the end of the day, you know, time is no, I, I wouldn't say any more of a you know, large thing that we spend time thinking about in ELM than it was when we did React and Flux before it. Um, It's just that ELM is built on these different primitives than React and Flux are built on, whereas React and Flux are built on mutation. ELM is built on this idea of signals um, that ultimately accomplish the same thing. But, you know, the fact that that's the foundation is not really all that relevant to our day-to-day experience of using it. Just in this.
0: Okay, well, well, give me a better idea of what a signal is.
1: Uh, the, the definition of a signal is it's a value that changes over time. So uh, it, the, the, basically, the rule of a signal is that you have to be able to look at it at a particular point in time and say, what is your value at this exact moment in time? And it has to give you back exactly one value for that.
0: Okay, and, and can you give me an example of like how it's used in practice? Like what, what would be a signal?
1: Um, sure. So, uh, as as Rao noted, the uh, the well, the current time, I guess, is kind of a <laughs> a, a tautological <laughs> example. Can't um, use that one now. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, uh, a, a better example would be maybe. Um, let's see. What's I'm trying to think of one that we actually use other than ports. <laughs> ports are pretty much. Uh, the, by far the most like common Like number one.
0: of likes, maybe, if you're like, if you implementing a Facebook page? Oh,
1: no. I mean, well, that's, if we were doing something like a Facebook page, we wouldn't use Signals at all. I mean, the reason I'm struggling to answer this question is because we really don't use Signals on a day-to-day basis. Like, I'm having to, okay. like, dig through my memory of, like, um, okay. So, uh, I remember at some point I was thinking about designing an API for um, uh, the full screen. Uh, So like when the user enters full screen mode in the browser, uh, in JavaScript, that's set up as uh, event system. So you would uh, subscribe to the event, you would add an event listener for when the user changes full screen state or not, and then run some code depending on when they do. Uh, In Elm, the way you would do that is you would probably set up a signal, uh, which is just a signal of Booleans for whether or not the user is in the full screen state. So at a given moment, you could ask that signal, is the user full screen right now? Yes or no? And, uh, as you know, over time, as, as the program continues running, it's going to accumulate, you know, at this moment, it's false at this moment. It's false at this moment. It's false. And finally the user, uh, you know, enters full screen mode and now it changes to true and then it stays true until they exit full screen mode again. And so because of the way Elm is architected, um, you could write your UI in terms of that. And basically instead of, you know, adding an event listener, imperatively, um, you would instead basically listen for changes to that signal because that amounts to the same thing it's just a different way of describing it
0: is it like a watcher
1: um in that example you could kind of think of it that way but
0: okay sure okay well let's let's discuss the elm architecture which is the basic pattern for which all elm programs are written. So, Richard, could you give me a high-level description of the Elm architecture?
1: Sure. Uh, You have three components or or three pieces to it. Uh, Your model, your view function, and your update. So, essentially, uh, you have a model, which is just a bunch of immutable data that represents your entire application state. You have your view, which takes that model and uh, translates it into what you want the screen to look like, what you want the interface to look like. Um, and then you have your update and your update function takes a model and an action, uh, which is a description of how you want that model to change, and then applies that action to the model in order to give you back a new model. So the cycle that happens there is uh, when the user, perf- so the view function uh, takes a model and renders the view. And as part of rendering that view, it also describes uh, when users Give various inputs, such as clicking on things or pressing um, uh, keys on the keyboard, things like that, drag and drop, what have you, um, when the users uh, make certain inputs happen, then those inputs get translated into actions. And then those actions get fed into the update function along with the current model in order to translate it into a new model, at which point you take the new model and it gets uh, the, the view function gets called again. Uh, with the new model and re-renders everything and much like with react and all sorts of other uh, nice virtual dom implementations the uh, render the view function is returning a virtual dom which is just a representation of how you want the screen to look and uh elm under the hood will take care of diffing that with the previous representation and very efficiently coming up with the minimal set of actual dom updates necessary to make that change happen, and applying them uh, uh, to the screen. So you're just essentially working declaratively with your model, your update function, and your view function, and uh, the Elm runtime is taking care of the rest.
0: Let's talk about that in more detail. How how does the Elm architecture compare to the classic model view controller strategy?
2: Uh, Brad, do you want to take that? Yeah, sure. Happy to take a shot at that. I mean, um, so there's, like, the classic MVC, there's, like, Rails MVC, and what front-end has come to, to turn, like, MV whatever, right? Um, and I think anyone who's had any experience with other front-end frameworks who refer, who who have models and views, um, or in React parlance, like, components and stores, um, will, like, the jump is pretty pretty similar um there's like state in one place and, and mutation and like uh how to uh transform state in in, in one place in the store in the model and then the view handles the uh, or the view or the component handles the actual rendering of that thing and then in react there's like a dispatcher that stays in the middle and other in other systems there's a controller that stays in the middle but uh in kind of big picture the separation is very very similar to um to, to to something like that, to, to, to other frameworks than to what we would think of as NVC. I mean, the, the big difference, obviously, is that, like, it's all functional. So the model doesn't actually have, like run transformations on itself. The model is just a bucket of functions that take in um, a record or like a, a basically a, a big piece of state and return a new thing that has one or two attributes changed. So the, like the, mod- the, the model itself d- doesn't store state. It's just a series of, tr- uh, of functions that transform state.
0: Okay. And Richard, as I understand, you've done a fair m- amount of work moving a application from, uh, you know, some previous uh, architecture to, to using Elm. Um, and I'm curious what that uh, transformative process has been like.
1: Um, so I would say that it depends on what architecture you're coming from. Uh, so I, I did it once with a side project of mine called DreamWriter, and then I did it on a very small scale at uh, No Red Ink, uh, which is where Rao and I work, and um, by the way, we're hiring. And uh, <laughs> and we uh, so with Dreamwriter, I started with React and Flux, and essentially ported the whole thing over to the Elm architecture. Um, that was not a big shift because uh, mainly the the change was uh, you know making the language jump. It wasn't so much an architectural. Um, Paradigm shift really. Uh, as it happened, I only had one Flux store. So essentially, if you've only got one Flux store, then mapping that to an update function is uh, pretty mechanical. It doesn't take a whole lot of um, changes because you're essentially starting with, um, you know, instead of your action dispatcher and your Flux store, you've just you're sort of rolling those together into one update function, which is just starting with a model and an action and giving you back a new model which is exactly what uh, an action dispatcher and uh, store in Flux uh, will do. You take an in action, and then you end up with a new sort of uh, model in the sense that you have a new store state at the end of the day. So that was not a big deal. At No Red Ink, uh, we, it was even smaller than that because it was literally just rewriting one Flux store. So I guess uh, it, it, when we introduced it at No Red Ink, it wasn't so much of a... Um, introducing the Elm architecture right off the bat, it was more just rewriting one small Flux store in Elm. And then once we determined that this was something that we liked and that we wanted to start using more, then we started using the Elm architecture from scratch on all of our new UIs that were, uh, you know, built out for new features.
0: Wow. So okay. So you're planning to to really. Um build out the aspect the, the or flesh out more of your architecture in Elm going forward?
1: Oh yeah. I mean, all of our new stuff's in Elm. I mean, <laughs> yeah,
2: it's, it's like, been probably what three months of just every new thing is Elm. Which, oh yeah. yeah. If not more. Yeah. H-
0: how has that, has that improved uh, developer productivity or in what ways has that changed how you, how you write applications? Well, I think it's definitely, uh, so the, the,
2: Speed at which we're writing new features has probably slowed down a little um, just because when we first started doing Elm, Richard was the only one who had any experience and it, the only anyone knows who had experience in functional programming at all. And now there's probably five of us uh, who do functional programming in Elm. Um, so we sl- the initial like jump uh, was definitely a little slower. But uh, that said, we have a lot fewer bugs and it's much, much easier to change things. So it pays for itself almost immediately. Because we will have a feature, then have 10 spec changes, and those spec changes, instead of taking two days each, will take an hour or two. And we just know the code works.
0: Why is that? How do you get those huge speed gains?
2: Well, uh, so at least from my perspective, the big thing is um, in what we were in React before, and I think a big problem with any front end code, or really uh, any like code base that can that has mutations in general, um, is that if I change something, I'm not sure if it will still work at runtime. So if I change a variable that used to be a Boolean to an array, uh, in, in a React code base, I'd have to try every single component that might use that value to see if it will to see if, if it'll still work the way I expect it to because react code will compile even if you give it bad parameters um, in in Elm you have a compiler and a, and a great compiler at that so if I change an attribute uh, or change one, uh, change how, how something is stored I'll immediately know everywhere in the code base where I need to update um, so the result is like it's very quick. To, it's very quick to change things, and you, you have a lot more freedom to, 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 to be flexible about, about that stuff because you, you just know that uh, the compiler has your back the entire time.
0: I'd love for a more in-depth discussion about Elm versus React. What are, the, uh, what are the, the most important points of comparison when you're looking at Elm versus React?
1: I would say the most important one is the compiler. Um, so you can, if you want, use React with the Elm architecture and immutability, and you can choose not to use side effects anywhere. So what that would basically look like is uh, so Redux uh, is essentially an implementation of the Elm architecture for React. Um, so you could use that. You could use uh, an immutables library like Immutable.js or Seamless Immutable or any of the others. You could use. Um, uh, Essentially, actions in a style where you're deliberately not doing side effects anywhere and, and using discipline, make sure that you're only using side effects in, uh, you know, your, in, in one place so they operate more like managed effects than side effects. The problem is, even if you do all of those things, you don't have guarantees around them. Um, you're just uh, benefiting from them to the extent that you are successful at maintaining your own discipline. So the problem with that is that uh, we're human and we make mistakes. We try to stick to something, but we inadvertently fail to from time to time. It's just inevitable. And with Elm, you not only are doing all of those things, but the compiler is guaranteeing that you're never breaking those invariants. So, for example, um, if you look at any given function in Elm and it says it returns a string, you know for sure that several things. One, that it returns a string always two that it's not mutating any other part of your program three that it has no side effects because the only way anything in Elm can do any effect is if it returns a task, which is kind of like a promise um, instead of some bare data type, like a string or a record or a list or something like that. So just right off the bat, you eliminate this huge class of errors just by looking at the return type of any given function. And as Raoul mentioned, the compiler guarantees that. You can't mess that up. If you say that it's returning a string, or for example, if you have several different pathways with branching ifs and things like that, and calling other functions, um, if sometimes it returns a string, and sometimes it returns a task, the compiler won't let you do that. It says, no, you need to always return one or the other. You have to be consistent. also, it there, there's no concept of null or undefined or nil or anything like that in Elm. Uh, instead of the absence of a value being something that can sort of permeate through your program and lead to undefined is not a function and things like that, uh, instead it's opt-in. You have to specifically say when a value might be missing and you can't forget to handle it. So that's um, basically why we don't really see runtime exceptions anymore because our Elm code is... Uh, backed by the elm compiler and it just catches all of that stuff ahead of time
2: yeah i'd add especially like specific on that point like uh in react you're constantly re- refreshing the browser to see if like things are still working uh and there are entire days where i, I don't even look at the browser when i'm coding in elm code uh because mm. i just know it's gonna work uh it would be <laughs> right. amazing
0: Interesting. Can, do you guys know any in-depth details for how the Elm compiler works?
1: Crazy magic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, uh, what do you want to know? I, I know...
0: Well, I mean, is, how hard is it to write an in, like a fast in-browser compiler?
1: So the compiler doesn't run in the browser. I mean, it runs in the command line. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, I know that it depends on how nice you want to make it. So Evan has invested a ton of time in not only making sure that it it works properly and works really fast both of which it does but also in just giving really nice error messages when things go wrong to me that's a huge difference because i i originally way back in the day was a java programmer um like an enterprise java developer and uh hope never gonna never to go back to that world but um, i I had a very different impression of compilers back then because in java you you have a compiler that is slow and honestly not very helpful and only catches some errors um i feel like elm's compiler is lightning fast it essentially catches uh, almost all errors that i could reasonably expect a compiler to (laughs) catch other than like logic errors where i just wrote something that was sane but wrong um and uh and when there's an error message it tends to give me uh something helpful that gets points me in the right direction um and that's also improving all the time i'm particularly excited about the next release uh, of elm because it's got even more crazy improvements to the niceness of error messages and basically decreasing as much as time as much as possible the amount of time between when you make a mistake and how quickly you can fix it um So, uh, to answer the original question, I don't know how hard it is to, uh, make one of these compilers because I've never made one, but I can say that I know that Evan is one of the foremost experts in this field. Um, and he has, uh, despite that spent an inordinate amount of time, um, making the Elm compiler as good as it is. So, uh. I I don't think that we'll be seeing another compiler of this quality anytime soon (laughs) from any other languages.
0: Yeah. Okay. So, you know, you've mentioned the value of uh, the Elm compiler in terms of the the error messages it gives you. I'm curious about the other types of tools that are available for debugging and testing Elm code.
1: Um, So there are, I guess there are two main other ones. Uh, one is called Elm Reactor, uh, also known as the time-traveling debugger. Honestly, um, we don't really use that. Uh, it's it's pretty cool. It makes for a nice demo, but uh, it's at least not at present. It's not really solving a problem that we have. Um, it There's a work in progress for a future version. So essentially, the, the cool demo that it gives is you can run your program, uh, and then you can pause time, Rewind time and just watch the you know the what you just saw replay in reverse, um, and then after going back in time, you can modify your code and change some of your logic, and then hit play again, and it'll replay all those actions except with the new code applied. So the use case for this would be you're going along and you encounter a bug, you hit pause, you rewind so that you can now watch the bug get reproduced, and then you change your code and fix the bug and you can hit play again and watch to confirm whether your change actually fixed the bug without having to manually click through and reproduce the state and all that. Um, What's really exciting about that, though, is the idea of... um, being able to export and then import those uh, replays because something that we do spend a lot of time on and a problem that we would love to have solved is reproducing stuff that other people find. Specifically, we have a QA guy who every time we're about to make a release, he will go through and check it and make sure that it's you know good. Um, when he finds a bug, currently the state of the art is he reproduces it himself to make sure that it is reproducible and then he writes out a description of how to reproduce it which we then read and then attempt to reproduce it locally um there's a lot of time wasted in that reproduction process it would be way better if we could just have him running elm reactor and then once he hits a bug he just hits pause exports it sends it to us we import it and then now we have the exact test case that he um uh came up with, not to mention, not only can we do it um, for our local development, but in theory, uh, once we have that in a data form, we could also use it to write an automatic integration test to make sure that that no longer reproduces going forward as part of our test suite. Um, So that would be awesome, but uh, that's not out yet. (laughs) Uh, I know the guy who's working on that, but uh, he's not done with it yet. So uh, that's one tool is Elm reactor, the other tool is uh, Elm test which essentially runs on Node.js and just runs unit tests against um, your Elm code. So we use that for testing things like validation logic, uh, just general business logic. Um, in some cases, we use that in conjunction with Elm Check, which is sort of a uh, property-based testing tool, so, uh, like QuickCheck, where it generates a bunch of random data according to your specifications and runs your tests like 100 times with a bunch of different random inputs so you can assert various properties about the results. Um So from my perspective, those would be the two main tools for that.
0: And I'd love to get some more color on the, the culture around open source on the Elm project. Like how many people are working on Elm related projects and how, how is the culture growing?
1: Well, um, I don't know exact numbers as far as, uh, how, how many people are using it, but, uh, it's definitely growing quickly. Um, I I think like a year ago, I remember being on the uh, the Elm Discuss mailing list, and we would see uh, a couple of posts every day, and that like you know uh, the same kind of handful of people on it. But now I just can't keep track of it. There's just too many new people all the time posting stuff um, and asking questions and getting impressively detailed answers. Um, so I, I haven't really done any measurement, but. One metric is that basically Evan has been unable to keep up with the mailing list anymore because the volume is too high where he used to sort of, you know, respond individually to people. Now he's like, I just can't, I'll just, I'll be spending all day on this if I, (laughs) if, if I keep monitoring it, um, so now he's kind of like delegating it and trusting that some of the the you know older community members uh, will will ping him if something important comes up and uh, so that it doesn't escape his attention. But um, so there's that. There's now I mean several companies using it in production. There's us, Circuit Hub, um, we uh, Periodically, we hear companies tweet about it that they they've shipped some Elm production thing, and we're like, who are you? We never even heard of you. Um, <laughs> And uh, so it's it's definitely growing. It's growing quickly, and uh, I, I'm really excited to be you know one of the companies on the forefront of this stuff.
0: How, uh, give me a better idea of how Elm interacts with traditional web technologies like like HTML and CSS and JavaScript. Uh, sure, I mean I think uh,
2: like Elm to CSS is the, it's the exact same to to HTML, CSS, or JavaScript to CSS, right? Like, sure. it's a totally separate thing. It also has no... I mean, maybe our ops guy wouldn't agree with this, but it has no bearing uh-huh. on, our on like, our back end at all. Um, the, there are, the only interop we ever have to do is Elm to JavaScript, uh, and Elm has a pretty nice interface for this called Ports, where basically you can... Call out to whatever JavaScript library you want. Um, for instance, like we use uh, an old jQuery date picker that we want to keep on the site. Well, maybe want to keep on the site. <laughs> <But> <laughs> we, we are keeping on the site We do. To, to do that, obviously, we can't ensure that it doesn't have mutative side effects. Um, so Elm lets you kind of put JavaScript code, like arbitrary JavaScript code, in containers where you where you say where Elm is basically like, okay, it's cool that this that like you're cool with this piece of code and you're cool if it causes mutations and we have to say yes uh, so there are like certain parts where um where where, where we have little, these ports to things um but most of the time we're just writing elm um and like the, the interop stuff is like very simple or, or mostly just a boilerplate um but yeah i mean to, to html um it's not like ember or, or angular where you're writing like Half HTML, half JavaScript templates. Um, in, in Elm, you write your your HTML through Elm helper functions. That um, looks a little bit like uh, React code minus JSX. So, you, like you have little helper, you have a helper called div that takes an attribute called class. Um, but it's fairly straightforward. Um, our designers actually started looking at it. Um, it's like not. It's not. It's not. Uh, crazy. It, it has the same structure as HTML. It just isn't organized. It, it just doesn't have doesn't have the same syntax. Um, but yeah, I mean, in general, like it feels a lot like JavaScript development.
0: Right. Okay. So if I have some experience with JavaScript or just with Rails, how do I get started with Elm?
1: Uh, so we have a blog post about that. Actually, uh, it's called "Building a Live Validated Signup Form in Elm." And uh, essentially, it literally just assumes that you know JavaScript, and that's it. Uh, It doesn't assume any knowledge of any functional programming or any Elm knowledge whatsoever, and it just takes you through start to finish, um, from getting started to building things to extending it, et cetera, Uh, making a sign-up form with live AJAX validation and things like that. Okay. That's on our company blog.
0: Sure, uh, Rao. Do you have any suggestions? Because I think you you probably started programming L more recently. Well, I'd suggest
2: having Richard at your beck and call uh, <laughs> <laughs> for me. Um, but I, I would say, like, if you're familiar with uh, React or Ember or Angular, the conceptual jump just isn't um, isn't that much. Uh, it's it's not that big of a deal. The syntax is a little bit hard to get through, but given a week, it wouldn't be. It it, it wasn't it wasn't that big of a deal either. Like for for context, like. Uh, I like my very first day writing Elm to writing my big feature in Elm was probably a month of time. Um, And now I feel totally comfortable probably what three or four months in um, just like, I feel totally comfortable with the language now. So I I don't think the jump is, uh, is particularly huge. Uh, And if you're coming from uh, like organized JavaScript, that isn't just jQuery soup on the page, then you'll have no trouble kind of getting, getting the Elm architecture done.
0: How does the concurrency support in Elm compare to writing uh, con- something that looks like concurrency in JavaScript?
1: Well, I mean, JavaScript's thing- single-threaded, so you can't really get any, you know...
0: <laughs> sure, yeah.
1: Um, uh, do you mean, like, asynchronous things? Like.
0: Yes, yes, asynchronicity.
1: Oh, sure. Do you want to talk about that, Ralph?
0: Uh Sure. So, um, as Richard talks
2: about, uh, the way you manage, um, like side effects in elm is that they're not side effects that they're, they're called effects or, or tasks and and basically when you want to make a request to the server you say i'm going to uh, dispatch this uh, i'll d- dispatch this task and when that task succeeds i'll set another action onto my uh, into my update function and generate a new model um so like kind of matt like it uh it's not any different than handling an Ajax request in a, in a Flux app or something like that, where you say, "All right, I'm going to make this request. I'm, I'm g- going to make this request. Have have this uh, task fire off, and at some point in the future, that task will succeed and will update my model." So, I, I mean, I, I don't think we have we ever really worry about um, like it's just not it's just an easy mental model to to wrap your head around when it, when it comes to, to Ajax requests specifically in you know. Elm.
0: What kinds of standard libraries does Elm offer?
1: Uh, so Elm ships with a uh, core library that's, uh, I would say, fairly similar to like underscore or lodash or any of the you know, variants thereof, um, except that it's sort of tailored around Elm uh, and the, the, the niceties that Elm syntax provides. So you have um, things like lists and arrays and uh, dictionaries and sets and uh, fun stuff like that and lots of helper functions to uh, make them nicer to use. Um, there's also uh, sort of a community standard around extending that where you'll have uh, something like elm list extra, which has sort of you know even more list functions on top of that, or um, uh, elm task extra if you want some extra task stuff, things like that. And those are sort of like little uh, uh, micro versions of something like underscore or low um, So uh, the standard library is basically... Uh, give you sort of everything you need to um, build a basic app and you know get up and running. And then if you want to do something fancier, there's this whole um, community of libraries out there that uh, you can use as well. Uh, one of the cool things about Elm's package manager is that it guarantees semantic versioning. So uh, essentially, if you try to make a breaking API change to a, a package you're going to publish to the repository, and you don't bump the major version number, uh, the package repository will automatically reject it and say this is a breaking change, this is going to break someone's code, you need to uh, bump the major version number. Which makes it, uh, you know, from our perspective, a lot easier to trust that when we're upgrading our packages that we're you know, not going to have any surprises. And even if there would be surprises, the package tool also lets you run a diff. So you can say elm package diff, and you give it two version numbers and the, the name of the package, and it will just show you what changed, like, uh, between those two. It'll say, like, okay, this thing was added, this function changed from taking this and returning that to taking this thing and returning that other thing, etc. So So um, the getting libraries from the community is a much nicer experience in Elm than it, it has been with like, um, NPM or Bauer, things like that.
0: Sure. Um, what's the future of Elm?
1: Uh, it replaces JavaScript. No, <laughs> 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 wouldn't that be nice? Well, you um, joke,
0: but uh, there's, there's a grain of truth in every joke. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, we'll see. Um, uh, uh, the, the main thing that's on the future of Elm uh, from a big picture perspective is uh, Elm on node. So you can actually start uh, writing things on the server. Definitely there's a much greater sense of urgency around Elm for the browser because there are a lot, a lot, a lot of solutions you can turn to on the server and way fewer on the browser. So uh, although Elm's paradigm is you know perfectly well suited for you know, server side development as well, um, there's just a, a much greater focus right now on the browser, and pretty much the only Elm thing that runs on Node is Elm Test because it you know you want it to run from the console rather than having to bring up a browser just to run your unit tests. But other than that, um, there really hasn't been uh, any anything released or any r- libraries released for re- writing uh, Elm code on the server side, even though conceptually there's no reason you couldn't do it right
2: now. Uh, yeah, I'd add to that that like... Um, I, I don't know like what the future of Elm is, but it does seem like the future of other front end tools is Elm. If that makes any sense, like the <laughs> of, like the new tooling around react, for instance, Redux, like both, like that seems a lot like the Elm architecture or like stateless components is a thing that Elm has been doing. And react is like getting closer to, uh, Ember is like, went from something closer to the angular model to closer to the react model. And react is getting closer to the Elm model. Kind of this notion of, uh, Having state in a single place where uh, it's easy to manage and all transformations on it are pure, um, like seems like where front-end development is going um, altogether. Whether that's an Elm or not, I don't know, but uh, I think Elm is kind of on the right track.
0: What I find curious about that development is it seems like it's this uh, sort of like mental convergence of the developer community on that model, and it's not like led by anybody. Specifically, but it's interesting because, like, it seems like the minds are converging on this idea, and I, I don't know—is there are there some underlying factors that are driving that?
1: Honestly, I think it's mainly just that we've had a lot of pain points for years and years in front end, and people have tried a lot of solutions, and these are the first set of solutions where people are actually feeling like it's solving the problem. I think that you know, historically, if you you know, we, we had a, a bunch of different attempts at a bunch of different MVC frameworks, but ultimately, at the end of the day, the reason that people were saying like, oh, should I be using Angular? Should I be using Ember? Should I be using Knockout? Should I be using – you know, there were a million different flavors of MVC, and I think the reason there was, was never a clear winner is just because MVC wasn't solving the problem. I mean, it was mm-hmm. making some things easier, but fundamentally, there was still this big problem. I think the next evolution of that is that people are saying, okay, wow, this virtual DOM idea is really good. And the reason that everybody's going from Angular to React or from Ember to React or, you know, everybody is going to React is just that virtual DOM is just you know a good solution to these problems and i think that now we're pretty clearly seeing the same kind of thing happen where people were saying okay flux that seems like a better idea than what we had before but pretty quickly now people are saying okay well wait a minute actually you know flux solves a bunch of these problems but it's kind of a a stepping stone what is it a stepping stone towards and the answer is sort of a single state atom which is why people are starting to talk about okay i think actually redux is where we want to end up um, and especially when you have a single state atom, there are these concrete benefits. Like you can have a time traveling debugger, you can, which uh, you know Redux has as well. It's not just Elm that has that anymore, because what you need for that is a single state atom, uh, as opposed to state scattered around your application and with each component being, you know, the owner of its own state. And uh, now that we're starting to see this convergence on that, and people are starting to say, well, this has concrete benefits um, to, to organizing things this way, um, I think the, the next logical step is going to be okay, what if I already have all of these things, if I'm already organizing my JavaScript this way, why am I not using Elm? Which takes this a step further and says, you know, sort of the, the cost of Elm, if, you know, there is a cost primarily, is that you have to do all of these things. You know, you, you you have no choice but to have a single state atom and to have um, immutability everywhere and to have no side effects. But if you've already concluded that you don't want to have those things, then that cost kind of goes away. And at that point, it's just like, well, what do I have to learn? I have to learn some syntax, I guess. Um, and then the benefits you get are no more runtime exceptions, which I think, and my experience has been, is kind of a big deal and that JavaScript will
2: never, ever have. Oh, well, I think there's also a similar march toward functional programming. Like I think people who were into functional programming also take talk about it as though like, this is just like the long arc of history is bending toward functional programming. Um, and that started years before we were developers and will continue years after us. And I think like, like, it's happening on the front end faster, but we're seeing that movement everywhere. And I think Elm is just another, uh, another one of the, uh, another language that's great that, that people are turning to because of it, because of its functional style.
1: I, I just got to cool. shout out. That was an excellent MLK reference. <laughs>
2: uh, functional
1: programming. Well done.
0: <laughs> cool. Well, that sounds like a, a good place to stop um, Richard and Rao. Thanks for coming out to software engineering daily. And, giving us an overview of Elm. It's been really nice talking to you guys.
2: Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks.